All right, well, welcome to How to Read Our Bible, episode 8 on Acts and the Letters. Welcome to our podcast. This is Joseph. I'm with Tim Spamberg. Hey. Every time. You know, Tim, as you know, I think back on the first century church, I just think, and you hear it said all the time, man, can't we just go back to what it was like then? You know? Yeah, in my experiences, anytime you start asking that question, you're about to start a cult. Ow. That's uh that's what that's how the Mormons got going. Uh was <laughs> gosh, I can't even think uh, Joseph Smith, that's yeah. his name. You know, he's Good old Joe. He's uh he's like, we need to get back to the first century church, and then he found some th- plates in a farm field and which I've heard I've heard this said, I don't know if this is true, but that you should never join a religion that was started by a white guy in a field. <laughs> <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think that I think that checks out. Um, I think it does, especially in in nineteenth uh, century America. Yeah. So then I so I grew up in the Stone Campbell movement, and, which that was the whole vibe was we just need to get back to the first century church, do it the way they did it. Uh, and so so that what ended up happening was so one you have to be baptized to be saved, which is bad theology, right? So you got to get water baptized or you're not saved. Uh, two, one of the founders of the movement, so Stone Campbell, the guy at Stone. He uh, got to a place where he probably denied the Trinity, um, which is makes, you, makes you not a Christian. Yeah. And then another guy who who was kind of in the in the movement early on, he went to help Joseph Smith start the Mormons. So, oh, so, he helped Joseph Smith. Yeah, he did. I thought, I, okay, wow, but no, that's crazy. Yeah. So anytime you start asking, you know, start thinking, hey man, let's just get back to the, the way true, the, the, the church, true church, true man. church. <laughs> I'm going to be the true church. <laughs> You're about to start a cult. <laughs> so stop. All right. Well, that's uh, the podcast for today. <laughs> Don't go try to start the true church. No, that's that's good. Um, which which is crazy. I didn't know that that that's what you meant. That was the church that you were a part of when you when you grew up there from that like that movement. tradition I mean, the, or movement. The movement now is is orthodox. Like it's yeah. it's an orthodox Christian yeah. movement. I, obviously, I would disagree with baptism is necessary for salvation, but um, but but some of the founders had. It's just even the movement they started wasn't true enough church for them, so yeah. they had to just keep keep going, keep reforming, man. This is the, the ref, you know, you keep reforming. That's the motto of the Reformation. So, well, that that leads in. I don't know if that leads in well, but it, it leads in now to. Uh, I mean, it's it's going to lead in. Yeah, <laughs> that's we're doing it right. That's now. right. We're uh, leading it in uh, to acts. Okay, yeah. because th- there is this idea of of kind of the utopia of Acts and, and the early church. And there's a lot of things that you look at it and it's like, that's awesome. I I would love it if my church looked like this or if I as a Christian could be a part of something like this or, or do this miracle or be this generous, whatever that looks like. So, so there's things that are admirable, but, but there's this lurking question of when we read the book of Acts, what should we be expecting to our church experience? Is our, should we be more like the first century church is that admirable? Obviously, we don't want to deny the Trinity, so we don't want to go that direction. But, yeah, what do you think? When we read the first history about the church written by St. Luke, what do we do? Well, one thing, even to those of you who listened to the podcast before, we kind of critiqued our current church moment in light of Jesus' ministry in the early church. And so this is a little bit maybe even of, not a pushback to what we said the last episode, but just a healthy corrective, which is that the answer is never to go back to the New Testament and say, let's do all the same things they did, because there's a distinction between what's descriptive 
in, especially when we get to what we're talking about today is Acts and the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, how to read those well. There's a difference between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. So, yeah, what's that distinction? So descriptive is something's just being described. Prescriptive is you need to do this. So when I pick up the newspaper and read an event that happens the day before, um, you know, maybe it's the K-State Wildcats defeated the Kansas Jayhawks in basketball. That's not saying that K-State should always beat KU in basketball. It's saying this is just what happens. Right. And, Although and some would disagree with that. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, some would very disagree very strongly with that. Yeah. So in Acts, there are there are prescriptive passages, I think, in Acts, where it's like the, the church needs to be this way. But a lot of what we read is, is simply descriptive. It's describing to us what the early church was, not laying out a manual for how we're supposed to gather together as a church, but it's just describing what happened from the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1 when he ascended to the right hand of the Father mm. to the the spreading of the mission of the church from, as Acts 1.8 says, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria wow. to the ends of the earth. So it's it's describing that. And as we read Acts, we should not start thinking everything is prescript. Everything is telling us you need to do it this way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, an obvious example is Acts 5, right? Ananias and Sapphira. They lie about what they had given, and they show up to Peter, and Peter's like, "Did you did you lie? Was it different than what you said?" And they they say yes, and then the Lord strikes them dead <laughs> immediately. So so I'm assuming right that would fall under the category of description. That's not the expectation we should have. Yeah, if you lie to your church, you it doesn't mean you're going to die every time. Although it does say that they lied to God and then say they lied to the Holy Spirit, which actually is a one of the a good texts to show that the Holy Spirit is God, but that's yeah. that's a, for another day. Um but yeah, okay. So so there, there's an obvious thing. So so when we read then, what what are some good clues as to when something is is we're supposed to read it as 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 history as as, as reporting what, what what God was doing through the Spirit, sent by, by the Father and the Son to the apostles. How, when do we read it as, man, that's awesome that that's what they're doing, versus, you know, the, the church was gathering, and they were, you know, Acts 2.42, breaking, breaking bread mm-hmm. together, teaching Jesus's words. And that seems more prescriptive, like, like that's something we should be doing. So how, what are some clues for you, Tim, when you read the book of Acts? Yeah, so the, the passage you mentioned, I think it's a good example. So Acts 2.42-47, uh, they, so the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. All came upon every soul, and many wondrous signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, there's a couple things here. One is, well, this is a different social context. They met in the temple. We we don't live where there's a temple. Mm-hmm. So that's descriptive. It's mm-hmm. not saying that the church, to be the true church, must attend in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And day by day, uh, they were there doing that each day. The church was gathering daily. We, mm-hmm. gather, we gather weekly on Sunday morning and then throughout the week in different ways. But that's not a... It's not a command for how many times we're supposed to to meet. It is a picture. But then when you see what they're doing together, they're praying together. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which I think at this point, uh, this might be a little bit early, but but 
the early church read the letters. They were considered scripture very early on, so Paul's yep. letters. So they're studying scripture, they're praying, they're eating together. Those are three practices that are all over the Hebrew Bible. Feasts together, praying together, and reading the scriptures. So in that sense, you know, that's there's a we can read those practices all through scripture as crucial practices to what God's people do to grow closer to him. So so reading with the whole Bible in mind is is important as well. And, th- and the last thing I would say, and this I don't know if this is a helpful reading strategy, but we tend to lionize or idolize the early church. Like they did all things right and miss the fact that even though this is a beautiful picture in in three chapters from this, there's going to be basically like racial prejudice and frustration because Greek widows think they're being overlooked because Hebrew widows are getting priority of treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, I use the phrase racial prejudice. It, I think it'd be easy to read Acts, uh, what, that's Acts 6, right? Beginning of Acts 6. Uh, Come on, man, you went to seminary. Jeez, man. Joseph Just doesn't know his Bible. On, throw me on the spot. Acts 6. Stephen, edit right. this part out. Jeez. <laughs> is it, or is it, it's, it's X6, right? It is X6. You mean with yeah. the appointing of the yeah. deacons? Yeah. The point, so yeah. we, ha- I think we have a moment where there's a lot of wrestling around what, you know, what is racial prejudice? What does that mean? What is, and here in the early church, you have Greek widows who are saying, hey, we feel like we're being neglected because of our race. That's a, that's a theme I think we tend to just read right over. And instead read Act 6 is like, hey, this is a good church leadership strategy. We have elders and we have deacons. Mm-hmm. And missing the fact that here's a real failure of the, of the early church in terms of, of the, way they, the way they're ministering. So while there are beautiful passages like Acts 2, it's like, well, a couple of chapters later, there are going to be pretty significant problems in the life of the church as well. And so as we read through Acts, we're not just reading for everything they do is right, because it's not. I mean, Acts 6 makes that clear. Yeah. As we read what's being described to us, we're we're letting the rest of the Bible inform what is what is good, what's bad, and how to respond to that. And then even Acts six, the last thing I'll say is they made deacons in that instance, but that's not the way that every need is responded to in, in a similar way. So in, in Corinthians, Paul is collecting an offering for the Jerusalem church yeah. in the wealthier parts of um, of Greece and other places that have more, especially the city of Corinth, had more wealth. Paul, in that case, was collecting the offering himself and was going to himself take it to Jerusalem along with other people. So he wasn't appointing deacons in that point. He, as an apostle, was actually doing the collection itself. So in Acts 6, it was, we're going to appoint deacons to diversify the wealth or to make sure that all widows are cared for well. And then in Paul's case of the offering to the poor church in Jerusalem, who was suffering a famine at the time, uh, he was responding with kind of him and his own emissaries because they were they were missionaries who did a lot of travel and could take those funds more easily. So that was... In, in the same case, the poor need to be cared for, right? That's the same truth. But how that happens looked differently depending on the, the context. Yeah, so tying it to the story of Scripture was one of the things to help navigate it. Noticing that there's differences and failures and seeing what those failures look like is helpful for, for seeing the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. I think something I, I would add to that, too, is just looking for the motifs or repeated patterns. So... Mm-hmm. Obviously, a key goal in Acts is the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, to be witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection in his life throughout the local area, beyond it, and to the ends of the earth. And you see that that is a repeated theme, the spreading of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. It's clear that is normative, prescriptive behavior. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be taking care of the poor. But the way it happens, as you identified, is, is different. And so there, there's motifs, 
right, which are, are repeated events, repeated ideas, words that that arise and look for those mo- motifs and then see how they're carried out. I think something that, that is really helpful, kind of bridging the gap between the book of Acts and the letters is identifying how the churches that Paul is talking to aligns with their their context in the book of Acts and seeing w- what is Paul instructing the churches to do. Mm-hmm. So even even going back to the conversation we had last episode, talking about uh, miracles and and we'll call it more like more charismatic gifts. When Paul talks to a lot of churches, very few examples are him his concern saying you you need to be practicing miracles more. You need to be practicing mm-hmm. speaking in tongues more. That, he he doesn't say that. What, what, is, what does he talk about? He, he's concerned about how they're loving one another. He's concerned about divisions over Jews, Gentiles. He's concerned about sin. He's concerned in Thessalonica about how people have become sluggish and aren't working. He's concerned about false teachers. Mm-hmm. So the, the letters become a counterpart that help instruct in the book of Acts, not, not just uh, what was happening, but how Paul's encouraging them to grow. So it sheds light equally in both ways. Acts sheds light on the letters and the letters shine light on Acts as to how uh, the apostles are concerned in helping them grow in light of the gospel that they receive, the tradition they received from the apostles. Yeah, that's good. So I guess we can launch into then some questions around around the letters. I, I first think it would be good for us to just address an issue that, Maybe I'm not sure how exposed people are to this, but if they were to start digging into reading, for example, First and Second Timothy, reading Second Thessalonians, Second Peter, the Johannine letters, what you're going to come upon pretty quickly is that there's a lot of scholars, non-evangelical, which there's a lot of those, mm-hmm. who believe that Paul didn't write most of the New Testament letters, that there was a Johannine community that wrote those letters or epistles. And so we, we would make a mistake by not addressing, did Paul actually write these? Or were they what a term is called pseudonymous, that there was, they wrote under Paul's name, but it actually wasn't written by Paul or pseudonymous in edit letters. That's what the claim is about these. What, what, what is your response to that, Tim? Well, one is, what's the, what is the witness of the early church? So how early do we see these letters quoted and attributed to Paul? That's good. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, pretty early on and pretty significantly, it's, it's clear that people assume Pauline authorship. Two is, what do the letters themselves contain? So when Paul says, I, I wrote this, and he includes personal relationships, like thinking especially of one of the most contested, like, hey, he didn't write this, is the pastorals, First and Second Timothy, and there you have a pretty like significant relationship between Paul and Timothy that's getting worked out. Paul is the as a mentor to Timothy, who's a younger pastor. And so it's hard to make sense of those letters as written by a community without Paul as the author, as well as when you read the context, it actually fits Paul's experience in Ephesus and what we read in Acts, which talks about the Ephesus church, as well as Ephesians itself. There are similar themes that that get played out. Yeah. So it's kind of knowing the full picture is like, wow, it, but it seems to fit right. Paul's authorship. And then third, you know, the, the typical argument for why these letters aren't Pauline is, is they, well, we did a search of words, and there are a bunch of different words used in this. That's huge. 
Like First Timothy uses words that are very different than, say, Galatians, which is a letter almost everyone would say Paul wrote for sure. Yes. Galatians. And my response to that is, well, they're two totally different letters. I mean, Galatians right. is written to a church community around a specific issue, which is that they're abandoning the gospel and moving into legalism. So his terms and his what he writes are going to be very specific to that, whereas as the pastorals to Timothy are Paul writing probably close to his death to someone in his own vocation, which is pastor, church planner, and it's a very personal letter. And so the idea that he would use all the same words, I, I, find, I don't find that particularly compelling. Just like if you were to do a word search of what I say to my family and then what I say on, you know, in a sermon, it's probably going to sound a little bit different. Or how I would write a note to one of my friends who's a pastor in another part of the, of the world versus what I might say to, you know, to the church and how to read our Bible class. It's going to be different. Yeah. And so that, I don't think that solves all the tensions, but it's like that... Instead of the answer to why is Paul using different words being, well, Paul didn't write it, could there be another explanation for why Paul is using different language? No, that's really good. I think just to highlight, right, unanimous in the early church, what was canon, what wasn't? I mean, that that goes back to the canonicity question. And the reality is from very early on, they were identifying who wrote what books. And then on top of that, they were identifying, nope, that was not written by an apostle. Um, so, so you had that delineation very early on, and so that, that that's a really good point that you made, and important to highlight that. Well, and even to add to that, you know, maybe this muddies the water a little bit. What Paul's corpus, I think, has a lot of strong attestation, whereas Second and Third John, which are very short letters, don't have mm-hmm. attestation, and there's more questions around. Those, of course, being just very, very, very short letters of a pastor, really, to someone in a church. And there we have quotations much later than... Um, so while I believe John wrote both those letters, I would be much less strong in my my arguments for Second and Third John than I would be for like First and Second Timothy or the entirety of the Pauline corpus, which is, is really the heart of a lot of the New Testament theology we have. Um, but even the fact that the second and third John are in there, which are very short letters that seem like, why, why are these scriptures? It's because even with some questions, the early church viewed that as written by an apostle, John. And because it was written by an apostle, John, his words are incredibly important to be preserved. And that's why we have them. That's why we have a New Testament is not just because um, there was some interesting writing people liked, right. but they saw that writing is attached to apostolic authority and therefore crucial for the church to to keep and to remember and to, to hold for posterity. No, that's good. And I, I think the only thing I would add, or, or, or really just develop one of the points that you made, which is interesting, in, in the field of, of biblical studies, it's, it's kind of catching up to linguistics. So in seminary, I took a deep dive kind of into linguistics. And the reality is, is that linguists and, and studies in, in linguistics is kind of ahead of where a lot of academic biblical scholarship is. And, it, and it's starting to catch up. But what has become obviously true, and in my mind to the point that really isn't even debatable, is that to make the claim that you brought up, which is one of the strongest claims made about, for example, Paul's letter, is that he uses different language in First and Second Timothy than in Galatians and Romans, ergo, it cannot be he who wrote it. And what has become, again, no one debates this, I, I don't think, seriously, in terms of linguistics, is that in order to understand someone's, what the term is called idiolect, which is, if you, if you think of dialect, 
a community, right, has, you know, English, for example, as a language, and there's a, a dialect as a subgroup of a particular way someone speaks. So an idiolect is taking that to the individual. That you need way more uh, words and sentences and writings of someone to actually determine what is their idiolect, what are things that they say and don't say. You can't take four letters and say, okay, now we know everything about how this guy speaks and writes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just not, a, we don't have enough writing from Paul to be able to determine what his idiolect is. And so kind of those, those arguments about his use of language in First and Second Timothy not aligning with other books is really erroneous. And, and I think is soon to die out because linguistically it's just, it's not factual. It's not, it's not based on how, and how we understand the way language works. That typically is the biggest stumbling block or used in, in more liberal scholarship, and that's falling away. I'm curious, do you think that after people listen to 10 of our podcasts, they'll have your idiolect down? They'll, we'll be able to determine what your idiolect is? No, but hopefully they'll start snorting. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten several comments about that. <laughs> Actually, I've gotten several comments about your snorting, so that's good, man. Good comments or? Yeah, they, oh, people love it. People there it love, is. They love the snort. <laughs> Okay, there it is. Hey, come on. All, hey. right. <laughs> All right. So so with that then, now that we established that, which I think was important, but that doesn't necessarily help us read it. And so I want to take us into a topic of, of called uh, occasional theology, occasional theology. And so when we read the letters, we're dealing with occasional theology. And the basic idea of that is the letters are written to a, a, a particular situation uh, for a particular occasion. And so what you're getting from, for example, Paul, when he's writing and he's talking about a, a particular issue, he's not presenting his full theology. Instead, he's, he's providing enough theology to address a particular occasion or situation. So, Tim, when, when we open up the epistles, the letters, how does that occasional theology affect how we read and, and do application for our own lives, do our own theologizing from the text. And if you have a couple examples, that'd be great too. Uh, yeah, you're probably not going to like the example that here, I pick. Here we go. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it, but I, oh, I should have I uh, made sure I actually know what I'm talking about before I do this. I'm, I'm going to try though. So 1 Corinthians 14. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians is Paul is trying to, to get them to have orderly worship. And basically how they talk. So I think the first relevance is head coverings, which is always exciting. Where's, where's the head coverings? First, first Corinthians 11. It's, that's what I thought. It's, it's earlier in 11. All right, so Paul... Uh, I, just, I just want the listener to know that Tim went straight for the topic that I said beforehand. Yeah, man, I don't think we should talk about this. That's, it was like, <laughs> well, I, now I know what we're talking about. That's right. <laughs> so this is, this is the context of a worship service. Uh, so this is 1 Corinthians 11.4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Right? So, if it, Joseph, you have a beautiful head of hair, which is enough for the both of us. It is. It's a lot. Um, if you were to cover your head, that would dishonor it. So don't cover your head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, that does not mean that if you shave your head that you're it's dishonored. I want to be very clear about that. That's yeah, that's important um, for someone like it's, you. It's very important <laughs> for someone like me. But basically, so there, there's a couple things going on here that are important. One is that head coverings really matter to Paul. They don't matter anymore. Um, now that becomes the question is, well, should they still matter? To some churches, they do still matter. 
and I'll, I'll come back to that. But the other issue is when you get up in front of the church to speak, a man should not cover his head and a woman should cover her head when she gets up to speak in front of the context of the church to pray or to prophesy. Now, skip ahead, 1 Corinthians 14, to one of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible, which is, Paul writes this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, that's obviously pretty brutal to our modern eyes. And yet, what's interesting is Paul had just explained to women, when you get up to speak in front of the church, to pray or prophesy, make sure your head is covered. Mm -hmm. And then here he says, women should not speak. It appears that's what he's saying, is that women should keep silent in uh, churches. So there's multiple layers here of occasional theology that give us, I think, some important parameters for us today, but ultimately are not relevant because of, of the, or at least I would argue they're not relevant because of the cultural moment. So head coverings. Head coverings were a clear designation of masculinity and femininity in that day. Mm-hmm. So a woman covered her head, a man didn't. That's not true anymore. A head covering today is not a sign of being a, a male or female. So I would argue that's occasional. That doesn't, that's not relevant to us. What is relevant is that men and women embrace who we are as in our own kind of gender, gendered reality is I should lean into that and not be ashamed of, of that. Hmm. So that's a, a piece of occasional theology. Secondly, the way they did worship is very different than how we do worship. Mm-hmm. So in, you know, everyone brought their own gift to contribute. Someone might get up and, and give a prophecy, which you know, my interpretation of what prophecy is is basically what our preaching is. That's hotly debated. Basically, you take a passage of scripture and you say, "I think this is the Lord's word for the church." Hmm. In light of the scripture, it's a very reformed view. It, it well, and so men and women are getting up and doing this in the church service, in the context of First Corinthians fourteen. And yet, because our worship service is different, because we don't have open mic time, this is occasional. Paul is is trying to make a disorderly worship service more orderly. And then the third piece of occasional theology is after someone got up and read a scripture and said, hey, this is what I think it means, the elders of the church would essentially decide, did that person teach truth or was it false? And so I think that's the context of the moment for women not to speak is because the elders uh, were to be the ones who sort of sifted through the theology of the church to affirm, to not affirm. And that's what, what verse 33 is referring to, because as Paul talks about eldership being a, a male-only role, which again, I know we're in hotly debated territory there, and, and some people even say, is that occasional theology? The fact that right. in the New Testament, elders were male-only, is that only for the first century, or is that still true um, today? But I think just for the context of 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, you have a few, I think, just interesting pieces of that you have to work through. And obviously, I've begun to give my interpretation, but you have... Our head coverings, occasional theology, is how we do worship, occasional theology. Should we go back to open mic time and whoever wants to come in with a word of prophecy can come in with a word of prophecy? Or is that just the way they did it in Corinth in that day? Right. Um, what does it mean to have the elders speak? There are some contexts in church contexts where women can't get up and prophesy on a Sunday morning um, in the life of the church. Is that occasional? Th- so I know I'm not probably answering many questions, but uh, wherever you want to take this, now that I've raised the topic that you didn't want to talk about. No, that's this, I think great. This is, I think this is one of the best examples in the New Testament of, wow, what is tailored to the Corinth church first century and what is describing the way they were doing worship, as we right. categories we used earlier, and what is prescriptive for us today, 21st century in Shawnee as we do worship. Right, and I think just to kind of summarize, you know, how this relates is that when Paul is talking about these things, 
he's not giving his full outline of everything that, number one, a worship service should look like, yep. everything a man should or should not do, everything a woman should or should not do. It is not a complete list. It is not a complete picture. It's addressing these very specific issues uh, that has been raised by this occasion within Corinth. And so if, if you were to just read 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 and think, all right, I got the full picture of everything a worship service should be about, needs, mm-hmm. what I should or should not do as a man, you know, then you will have a, a thin theology. What you would have would be true, but it'd be thin. And that is the point that we're getting at with occasional theology. And so, for example, you know, we have systematic textbooks where, you know, I'm, I'm reading through Calvin's Institutes. And that is very much, when, when he talks about, for example, the Trinity, he's, he's trying to go through the intricacies of the Trinity. And that's not what Scripture is. That's not what the letters are. The, except the one caveat is probably the Book of Romans. That's the closest you get yeah. to Paul just riffing on theology. And even that, it still is contextual. And that's a hotly debated issue of what is the purpose of Romans. But all that to say, that, that's the closest you get to Paul riffing and just kind of going at it with his full theology. Well, you named something there. I want to, I want yeah, that's important, ahead. which is, so Paul is not, when he sits down to write 1 Corinthians, he's not sitting down to write something like Calvin sits down to write the Institutes, right. to write a work of theology. He's writing to a particular church who has particular practices and experiences Paul is trying to reform because they're moving in directions Paul feels like is out of line with what a church should be. So so when we only have half the conversation. Right. Right. We only have half of what Paul's addressing. And that makes reading First Corinthians interesting. So in uh, chapter 10, verse 23, Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That phrase, all things are lawful, a lot of commentators think, was a catchphrase within the life of the Corinth church, and Paul is pushing back on it. Mm-hmm. We think that's the case, but we... we we don't fully know, and even if, if even if we say yes, that was a you know a catchphrase uh, at Corinth Church. We don't know fully what they meant by that, right? And we have a little bit of sense if you read all of First Corinthians ten and uh, and really eight through nine. It's around this idea of do we eat food that has been sacrificed to idols in the temple, and it's clear there was a faction of people saying yes, you can eat you can eat meat that's been sacrificed in the temple, out of the temple, it doesn't matter. Paul's going to push back on some of that but we don't know fully what they meant by all things are lawful. And so I think that's important. And then when we move into the head coverings conversation in 11, or this idea of women being silent in churches, when we read the broad frame of the New Testament, it's pretty clear, like Paul had some pretty dynamic female leaders. And as I said, like there are women getting up to prophesy in the church. When he says the women keep silent in churches, he's responding to something specific there that we don't have the full picture of. And so uh, we need to be cautious as we interpret that line, as well as recognize this is an occasional theology. We should be hesitant to then broadly apply that, this line, to all churches everywhere um, at all times. But again, that, that's, those are messy categories. But that idea that you named that Paul's addressing particular theological issues in particular cities is really important as we read the epistles. No, that's good. What Tim has selected is... Two of the most debated passages yeah. in all of the epistles, probably the, the other one would just be First Timothy 2. 
And so not all of the epistles are like that, that they're so enigmatic. No. Yeah. I mean, there's still some odd things, but in general, it's not, it's not ambiguous. For example, you, when you open up Ephesians 1 and you read, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. You know, when you read that, that's very clear what it's meaning, right? Yeah. It's not... Yeah. It's not difficult, loaded with all of this this background. And of course, there still is purpose and a people and a context. But I just want to provide that caveat of don't be afraid that whenever you turn it to epistle that it's, it's going to be so enigmatic. You don't know what's for you and what's for the church. But just know that if you're going to create a theology about anything, that if you're pulling it just from one part of one letter, yes, that is so important for constructing good application for your life, meaningful application, but it's not always going to be the full picture. We need help from the Gospels, from the other letters, from Acts, from the Old Testament to help work against reductionism. I think that's a good word because I'm with you. There are very few, I think, issues in the New Testament that become very unclear about what's occasional and what's not. I think women in leadership, you know, I think there's pretty good clarity on that, but that is more debated in the life of the church. When it comes to issues like an issue like sexuality, I think it's, it's pretty clear that that is not occasional theology. That is for all church, all time, because of the way it's spoken of, of in the New Testament. By diving into the reading, it's not all very enigmatic. And, and I think we can sort out what is occasional and what is not. So I think that, that's a good word. Yeah. And I think there we can close this podcast. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you for the next one.